you guys can uh, get your Bibles already. We're going to be flipping through uh, both Old and New Testament passages. And we're going to take just a special Sunday and just address where we're at as a church from time to time. Things will come up and we'll just push pause on our Through the Bible study and uh, just, you know, talk about what needs to be talked about. Um, recently, uh, just some concerns has been, had been brought to myself and the elders uh, about the use of alcohol in the church. And so it really caused us to um, wait on the Lord and pray and fast and uh, dig into the word uh, to listen to many, many teachings and read many blogs and uh, read, you know, doctors' opinions on sub- the subject and the like. And so today, um, we're going we're gonna to just kind of address where we're at on that subject. We told you guys that we would um, kind of let you know where we've landed and uh, just uh, think we should open up in prayer, huh? Sounds good. Lord Jesus, we just uh, come before you. You are our God. You are our Lord, our master, and our savior. Lord, we don't want to do anything apart from your purpose for us. We want to be led by the Holy Spirit. And Lord, we want to surrender to the authority of your word. Lord, we recognize that in our hands we have just everything we need to know pertaining to life and godliness, Lord, and we want to be governed by your revelation to us. And so, Lord, as I come here, I just humble myself and we humble ourselves. Uh, we, we just say, speak to us. We cry out for your spirit presence and we know you're here and uh, we pray that you would speak, that you just remove me from the equation and Lord, like our prayer has been through this whole study, Lord, that you would be glorified and you would just uh, set free the, the people that are in bondage to alcohol. You would deliver from the idol of drunkenness, Lord, and you would you would also deliver those that are self-righteous in their own works, in their good things that they do. And Lord, that every man today would be found a sinner in desperate need of the Savior. Thank you, Lord, that you make a way available to freedom and to forgiveness through the cross and through your resurrection. And we love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, no doubt everybody in this room has some sort of a history with alcohol, whether it's within your friends' circles or your, uh, your family, your immediate family, um, you yourself perhaps have been an alcoholic. Maybe you'd even say you are an alcoholic today. Um, you know, my testimony with alcohol is uh, basically grew up on a cattle ranch, and um, uh, my dad had three brothers and a dad, and they all ran this giant cattle ranch. I mean, we were cowboys, you know, and, and uh, farmers. And, you know, there was often a, a, a box of hams or Keystone Light or something like that in the back of one of the farm trucks. And, uh, and yet, within my immediate family, uh, you know, my dad really didn't drink. You know, I rarely remember him having beer. Um, and, you know, there was never any um, effects of drunkenness within our home. The, the Lord had our house, you know. It was a beautiful thing. We were a home that worshipped Jesus and, um, but, you know, seeing effects of it within my uncle's lives, I have one uncle on my mom's side who has always had alcohol as a God in his life and would never repent of it and bow at the feet of Jesus. And just this year, uh, he has had his leg amputated, uh, because of the decaying of alcohol, you know, alcohol causing it to decay and, um, and still hasn't repented of, of this God. And, you know, we pray for him regularly. I love that uncle, Uncle Ron. Um, But, you know, with all of the testimonies and all of the stories that are out there, uh, today we want to look at a history of alcohol in the church. Um, And even more than that, and much more than that, we want to look at what the Bible says about alcohol and uh, about it within the church. So let's begin with a little history, shall we? Uh, Historically, God's people have always greatly enjoyed alcohol. In the European world, one of the most Christian drinks was beer. St. Gall was a missionary to the Celts, and he was a renowned brewer. 
After Charlemagne's reign, the church became Europe's exclusive brewer. When a young woman was to marry, her church would make her special bridal ale. And because of that ale, we derived our word bridal. Is there anybody here that wants to take up that ministry in the church? Making bridal ale for... No, okay, well, wait till after the Bible study. Pastor John Calvin's annual salary package included upwards of 250 gallons of wine to be enjoyed between he and his guests. Martin Luther explained the entire Reformation as, while I sat still and drank beer with Philip and Amsdorf, God dealt the papacy a mighty blow. Luther's wife Catherine was a skilled brewer, and his love letters to her when they were apart lamented his inability to drink her beer. When the Puritans landed at Plymouth Rock, the first permanent building they erected was not a church, but a brewery. As feminism grew in America during the turn of the 20th century, the women's suffrage and prohibition movements were a practical result of a feminine piety that also came to dominate the church as more women became pastors and the church became more feminine. Some denominations began to condemn alcohol as sinful, and the Methodist pastor, Dr. Thomas Welch, created a very Christian Welch's grape jelly, grape juice, just kidding, <laughs> to replace communion wine back in 1869. The marriage of Christianity and feminism helped to create a dry nation that put out of business all but the largest brewers who were able to survive on near beer and root beer, which explains why many of today's American beers largely mass-produced, watered down, light on calories, and weak in comparison to rich and dark European beers. A little bit of the history there. Now, as we work through the scriptures and many of the articles that I read, uh, you, you hear the argument that we don't really know what the Bible means when it refers to wine. Well, wine means wine, okay? Some Christians foolishly argue that such terms as new wine in the Bible and mixed wine in the Bible speak of non-alcoholic wine. But new wine can still intoxicate, according to the scripture, Isaiah 24, 7, Hosea 4, 11, and Joel 1, 5. And mixed wine refers to special wines where various wines are mixed together or spices are added, and it does not refer to wine cut with water. You read about it in Psalm 75, 8 and Song of Solomon 8, 2. God refers to pouring out his wine of his mixed wine on his enemies. And of course, he doesn't mean that he will dilute his justice. Psalm 75, 8. Now, the only time when such a practice of cutting the wine with water and diluting it is mentioned in the Bible is in regards to merchants who cut wine to rob customers. Isaiah 1, 22. Now, the Bible does speak about grape juice. In Numbers chapter 6, verse 3, specifically, grape juice is referred to, meaning non-alcoholic wine. And I believe that God would have used that same word in the rest of Scripture to avoid confusion had he not really meant wine. Now, all Bible-believing Christians would agree that, or should agree, that drunkenness is a sin. It's abundantly clear in the scriptures that drunkenness is a sin. Deuteronomy 21.20, Ecclesiastes 10.17, Matthew 24.29, and the list goes on and on. Drunkenness being a sin is so serious that no priest was to drink alcohol while performing their duties. Leviticus 10.9, even though they could consume wine while not working. Well, not on the job. The same was true with kings. No king was to drink wine while judging the law. Proverbs 31, 4 and 5. An elder or a pastor, the rulers of the church, cannot be a drunkard. 
1 Timothy 3.3 and Titus 1.7 specifically refers to the pastor not being given to wine or not being a practicing drunkard. And then a very sobering passage in 1 Corinthians 6.10 and Galatians 5.21 tells us that no drunkard will inherit the kingdom of God. And so for you today, if you are practicing drunkenness, the Holy Spirit is begging you right now to repent and to turn from your sin and to be reconciled from God, lest you enter into hell and damnation for all eternity. There's a lot of sins that are associated with drunkenness, and many of us have experienced these things. Each one having a scripture reference behind them, you've got incest, violence, adultery, mockery and brawling, poverty, late night and early morning drinking, hallucinations, my favorite, legendary antics, murder, gluttony and poverty, vomiting, staggering, madness, loudness combined with laughter, and then prolonged sleep, nakedness, sloth, escapism, depression, and staying up all night. And many of us have been severely affected by the sin of drunkenness in loved ones' lives. That all being said, there have been three different positions on alcohol within the church. First of all, prohibitionists. Prohibitionists wrongly teach that all drinking is a sin and that alcohol in and of itself and any drinking is evil. They go so far with the extreme statement of saying, had Jesus ever consumed alcohol, he would have ceased being God. I don't believe they've been reading their Bibles. Pastors, or one statement from a prohibitionist said that pastors who teach moderation are prostitutes of the pulpit. Worse than that, because they're allowed to continue preaching. We arrest women who sell their bodies for cash, but pastors can go on teaching moderation without consequence. And yet Psalm 104, 14 and 15 says that God makes the grass grow for the cattle and plants for man to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth and wine that gladdens the heart of man. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, Jesus' first miracle, it's clear, was performing, uh, putting over 100 gallons of water turning into wine at a wedding party. Matthew chapter 11, verse 19, Jesus, the Son of Man, came eating and drinking, and they said, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is proved right by her actions. And so, it's my belief that prohibition is an is a unbiblical stance on alcohol consumption. Secondly, you have, uh, darn it, every time I look at it, the word messes me up. Um, abstentionists, those that abstain. Okay, sorry, my weakness is phonetics. Abstentionists. I've said it once, it'll be there for the rest of the sermon. But the abstentionists... <laughs> say that alcohol consumption is not a sin. But because so many people abuse it, we should never drink alcohol. Colossians chapter 2, verse 20 kind of speaks to this viewpoint. If you want to flip there real fast, you can catch up to me. Colossians 2, 20 says, If you've died with Christ from the basic principles of the world... Why is though living in the world, do you subject yourself to regulations or rules? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things with perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. And so placing rules and regulations and religion on people that the Bible doesn't place is nothing more than uh, an appearance of wisdom, self-imposed religion, false humility, neglect of the body, and it has no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Hosea chapter 2 verse 8 tells us, For Israel did not know that I gave her grain, 
and new wine and oil and multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. Hosea tells us that God gave Israel food and drink and wealth and Israel used it for sin. But did God abstain in giving them things that he knew they would abuse? He didn't. He gave it. Has God ever given you anything that you've abused? You have a tongue in your head, don't you? He's given you a tongue and you've said things that you shouldn't have said. He's giving you hands and you've touched things that you shouldn't have touched. He's giving you a mind and you've thought things you shouldn't have thought. He's given you a mouth and you've eaten things that you shouldn't have eaten. You've drunk things that you shouldn't have drunk. He's given you money and you've spent it on things you shouldn't have spent it on. And so the natural reaction for us is to say, well, we should just get rid of these things that cause us to stumble. But ask yourself this question. Is there anything on planet Earth that someone has not used to sin against God with? Everything has been used to sin against God. One of our favorite sayings here is that the human heart is an idol factory. Everything in our life can be an idol and steal away our worship from God, can steal away our time and our passion and our energy and our money and our resources. Our kids can be an idol. Our cars can be an idol. Our spouses and our dogs and our cats and our goldfish can all be idols. There's a Latin phrase that we should keep in mind. Abusus usum no tollet. Abuse does not take away proper use. Martin Luther said, Do you suppose that abuses are eliminated by destroying the object which is abused? Men can go wrong with wine and women. Shall we then prohibit and abolish women? Luther then goes so far as to say, You know, some people worship the stars. Should we pluck them out of the sky? You know, the the idea of abstinence sounds good but what it ends up doing is abstaining from everything we've been, we've all been part of a church that says we're going to abstain from this or that because people are stumbling and then after a little bit of time people are still stumbling so then we abstain from this and that and that and this and the next thing you know you're wearing a suit and tie and a very tight uh, buttoned up dress up to above the adam's apple And we've all been there, you know, and then rules get made as to how dare you preach from the pulpit with a shirt that is untucked and a, you know, a neck that doesn't have a tie around it. It's the, it's the nature of the beast rules leading to more rules. Just ask the Pharisees. The Pharisees would just keep making rules. Thank you, rabbis, you know, rules that aren't in the Bible. One pastor was asked recently about the rules that he'd been placing in his church. And he said, well, every time there's a debatable issue, I take the conservative side. Why is that? He was asked. Just to be safe. Imagine every time there was some kind of controversy, just default to the conservative side. Make the rule. But how far does this go? You keep making rules and rules and rules about the rules. And pretty soon, you've crucified Jesus. Because when Jesus came, he broke none of the rules outlined to us in the scriptures. And yet he seemed to break every rule that was given by commandment of men. And so those that thought they were more holy than Jesus nailed him to a tree. It's a problem, you guys. It's a big problem to think that we can be more holy than Jesus. That we can go beyond what the scriptures tell us and force ourselves and others to do more and more deeds. Now, making a list of rules. Does keeping a list of rules make me better, more righteous, more accepted? What about breaking the list of rules? Does that make me worse? Does it make me less righteous? Does it make me less accepted? Well, first of all, we know that we can't keep the list of rules that God gave us. That's why Jesus had to come. If we could keep them, Jesus, God, wouldn't have had to shed his blood for us. 
D.A. Carson said, you know, Paul refused to circumcise Titus, even when it was demanded by many in the Jerusalem crowd, not because it didn't matter to them, but because it mattered so much that if Paul had circumcised Titus, he would have been giving the impression that Jesus, faith in Jesus is not enough for salvation. One has to become a Jew first before one can become a Christian. And that would jeopardize the exclusive sufficiency of Jesus. And then D.A. Carson gives us an example to create a contemporary analogy. If I'm called to preach the gospel among a lot of people who are cultural teetotalers, teetotalers are those that abstain from alcohol, I will give up alcohol for the sake of the gospel. But if they start saying, you cannot be a Christian and drink alcohol, I'll reply, pass the port. Or I think I'll have a glass of Beaujolais or whatever with my meal. Paul is flexible and is therefore prepared to circumcise Timothy when the exclusive sufficiency of Christ is not at stake and when a little cultural accommodation would help further the gospel. But he's very inflexible and refuses to circumcise Titus when people are saying that the Gentiles must be circumcised and become Jews to accept the Jewish Messiah. Then you have John Piper, a man who practices teetotaling, He's an advocate of teetotaling, yet he put his young pastoral ministry on the line at Bethlehem Baptist Church in 1982 in order to argue against a provision requiring teetotaling for church membership. And here's what he said. I want to hate what God hates and love what God loves. And this I know beyond a shadow of a doubt. God hates legalism as much as he hates alcoholism. If any of you still wonders why I go on supporting this amendment after hearing all the tragic stories about lives ruined through alcohol, the reason is that when I go home at night and close my eyes and let eternity rise in my mind, I see 10 million more people in hell because of legalism than because of alcoholism, and I think that that is a literal understatement. Satan is so sly. He distinguishes himself or disguises himself as an angel of light, the Apostle Paul says. He keeps his deadliest diseases the most sanitary. He clothes his captains in religious garments and houses his weapons in temples. Oh, don't you want to see his plots uncovered? Legalism is a more dangerous disease than alcoholism because it doesn't look like a disease. Alcoholism makes men fail. Legalism helps men succeed in the world. Alcoholism makes men depend on the bottle. Legalism makes men self-sufficient, depending on no one. Alcoholism destroys moral resolve. Legalism gives it strength. Alcoholics don't feel welcome in church. Legalists love to hear their morality extolled in church. Therefore, what we need in church is not front-end regulations to try to keep ourselves pure. We need to preach and pray and believe that neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, neither teetotalism nor social drinking, neither legalism nor alcoholism is of any avail with God, but only a new creation a new heart. The enemy is sending against us every day the Sherman tank of the flesh with its cannons of self-reliance and self-sufficiency. If we try to defend ourselves or our church with peace shooter regulations, we will be defeated even in our first apparent success. The only defense is to be rooted and built up in Christ and established in faith. Strengthen with all might and all power according to his glorious might for all endurance in patience with joy, holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together grows with a growth that is from God, from God, from God, and not from ourselves. Love to take credit for that, but that was all John Piper. It was all the Holy Spirit through John Piper. You know, we want to make rules. We want to make pea shooter regulations. And yet at the same time, there's rules that nobody really makes. You know, some people speed on the highway, so I'm not going to drive anymore. Some people are in debt. I don't want to spend any money. 
Some people swear, so I don't talk at all. I've taken a vow of silence. (laughs) How many people in this church, you don't have to raise your hand, struggle with pornography or other internet addictions? And yet, how many of us in this room have computers in our house, have internet connections in our house, in our bedrooms, or on our phones? Don't raise your hands. Seriously, it's awkward. No, I'm kidding. You know, we want to pick out what seems to be the sin of all sins and kind of, yes, this is it. This is the sin. Homosexuality. Ah, ah, you know. Alcoholism. Ah, drunkenness. You know, or just alcohol. It's, you know, we just, we pick these things and we elevate them. It's like, man, there are so many sins that we give ourselves over to. Things that don't even look like sins. And yet we try to become self-righteous rather than just loving Jesus and letting the Holy Spirit sanctify us. Matthew chapter 15 verses 1 through 3 says that then the scribes and the Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus saying, why do your disciples transgress the traditions of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And Jesus said to them, why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition?" You know, they come to Jesus saying, this is the tradition over, haven't you known that since prohibition, no pastor drinks a beer? You know, or haven't you known that you're supposed to wash your hands for three minutes before you eat? You know, and and Jesus is like, dude, you're just full-blown hating people and stoning people for rules that you've made up. And he sends so many woes against the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23 for straining out the little gnat and yet swallowing the camel. Woe to you, Pharisees. I'm sorry I didn't wash my hands before the meal, but you're going to hell. Legalism is more dangerous than alcoholism. 1 Timothy chapter 4 verses 1 through 4. I know you guys are fast Bible flippers. Some of you went to Sunday school when you were kids. 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 4. Now the Spirit expressly says, this means the Holy Spirit wants you to know, that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. They will begin to forbid people to marry And commanding to abstain from foods, which God has created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it's received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. You want to look at a demonic doctrine? You want to look at a a, a hypocrisy? It's people that are placing rules and regulations that they themselves are not able to bear, Acts chapter 15 tells us. You know, a lot of pastors would argue, just like Timothy, Paul tells Timothy, don't enjoy marital sex. Sex is for procreation alone. It's out there. Don't eat food. Don't eat certain foods. Don't enjoy a glass of wine that'll make the heart merry in God's presence. Many of these pastors are hypocritical liars. Two of the biggest pastors that had been preaching abstinence a few years ago were both fired because they were committing adultery on their wives. Most pastors who preach abstinence drink wine and lie about it and yet would still fire their staffers if they were caught drinking alcohol. But Paul tells Timothy, every creature of God is good. And nothing is to be refused if it's received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. Created things are meant to glorify God. They've been given to men to be enjoyed. They show God's choice, care to us. Deuteronomy 32, 13 says that he made Israel to ride on the heights of the earth that he might eat the produce of the fields. He made him to draw honey from the rock. I don't know what kind of honey they were drinking but or eating. Rock honey. And oil from the flinty rock. Curds from the cattle. Oh, cottage cheese. Ah, oh, so good. Put some peaches with it. 
and milk of the flock with the fat of lambs and rams of the breed of Bashan and goats with the choicest wheat and you drank wine, the blood of the grapes. Who made everything? God made everything. And how did God make everything? Good. What does Satan try to do? The guy who can't create anything, he manipulates God's creation. He bends and twists and distorts through sin. And pretty soon, sex, which is pure and beautiful and worshipful, turns into sin because of strip clubs. Or a glass of wine that can be used to worship God and his provision for man and his, his science. And it glorifies him now opens up a bar that promotes drunken debauchery and revelry. And so we automatically cease worshiping God in something that he created because of the abuse of that creation. God created alcohol for feasting and celebration and worship. And Satan goes and opens up the tavern down the street next to the strip club. The point is, that God makes things good. But people who don't love God and won't obey his word and suppress the truth and unrighteousness and exchange the worship for the creator and worship the creature, they're given over to vile passions. They're given over to a debased mind. They're given over to uncleanliness. And Satan is able to bend God's creation to seem like something evil. God's created it. And if we call it evil, we call God evil. Now, God has created things, and in his creation, he's given it to show his choice care for us. But note that he himself is in the business of restoring things to himself. He's in the business of restoring the things that he created to glorify himself to one day finally glorifying him once again. And guess what? We are missionaries and we get to be part of that. We get to tell the world that, hey, you're using God's good creation in a sinful way, but don't you know he created it to be wonderfully used in a, within this or this context? And it's a beautiful thing and it's a glorious thing. God is wanting to redeem all these things back to himself, back to purity within biblical lines. Ephesians 1, 9 and 10 says, Having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure that he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. What Paul's saying there is in the fullness of the time, everything that God's created that we have twisted will once again be fully used rightly like it was in the Garden of Eden. And he's in the process of bringing that about now. And in the millennial reign, we will see it fully come once again. And we're going to get to drink a choice glass of wine in purity and in worship to him. And we're going to close with a verse a little bit down the road today that says just that. Titus 1.15 says that to him who is pure, all things are pure. And yet we tend to think, you know, is this thing pure? Is this thing not pure? You know, it's, it's not so much is this thing pure. It's is the person participating in the thing pure? Are their motives pure before the Lord? We all hold in our hands today a perfect book. Inerrant. Inspired. The word of God breathed out on paper. Has anyone ever bent this pure book and used it for something ugly and wicked and awful? Do we abstain from it? You know, yes, people have brought false doctrines and twisted the scriptures. Satan himself did that to Jesus in the temptation. But do we abstain from the Bible? No, we press into the Bible and we know the truth. And we proclaim the truth. We don't get rid of the Bible. We use it rightly. We don't get rid of the food. We use it rightly. We don't get rid of sex. We use it rightly. We don't get rid of alcohol. We use it rightly. 
And here at Calvary Chapel, we're not about clean and unclean things. We're about redeemed and unredeemed people who participate in those things. Like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it for the glory of God because we were made to be worshipers of God. The issue is, are you doing it for God's glory? If you're doing it for God's glory, it's acceptable in his sight. But when we begin to worship the creature, the food, the drink, or the activity, then it is twisted and it is distorted. And so the conclusion to the abstention argument or position would be, I feel, to hold this position of abstention, saying that no, wine isn't bad, but we should just abstain from it because it it has caused evil. It's not necessarily a good position because it's telling the world that God made things bad and they're evil and we shouldn't touch them. And it's to say that Jesus was sinning when he consumed wine because he should have known better and not partaken. And it sets a dangerous precedent whereby we decide that every, excuse me, every time something happens, we're just going to chuck things out that are abused and make rules and rules and more rules about them. The third position, so you've got prohibitionists, you've got abstentionists, you've got moderationists. Moderationists would say that alcohol consumption is not a sin, but that some people can drink and some people can't. It depends upon the conscience of the individual and the conviction of the Holy Spirit upon their life. Legalistic morality and rules and regulation are not good for God's people. But the Bible and the Holy Spirit and prayer cause our conscience to be sensitive to his touch and can guide us through controversial matters of life and of doctrine. And so when the moderationist looks at the question, is consumption a sin? We look at 1 Timothy 3, Matthew 11, 2, John 2, Romans 14, 21, and we know that consumption itself is not a sin. One man said, it is the abuse of a thing that is sin, not its use. Sin is that which violates God's biblical commandments, not the additions and inventions we make. As sola scriptura Christians, only scripture, our minds, wills, and hearts are directed by God's revealed will in the scriptures alone. On issues not forbidden in scripture, not condemned by scripture, we cannot invent morality or even worse, impose our inventions of morality on others. But rather we look at Jesus's life and say, we cannot be holier than Jesus. The moderationist position distinguishes between universal sins and particular sins. Universal sins are sins that are true for everybody, everywhere, all the time, no matter what. And since you guys are starting to fall asleep, it's question answer time. What are some universal sins? Sins that no matter where you're at, it's sin and scripture tells us. Murder. Pornography. Lying. Theft. Adultery, homosexuality, okay? So we've got a good handle on some of those sins that blatantly scripture condemns these actions. Gossip, gluttony. How about universal sins in relationship to drinking? Drunkenness, stumbling a brother. 1 Corinthians 8, 12 said, if we stumble a brother, we sin against Christ himself. But we want to understand definitions. We want to know what the scripture is talking about. To stumble a brother in the Greek speaks of an occasion for apostasy. By us doing something and them witnessing it, it causes them to lose faith in Christ, to fall back into the world of sin and drunkenness or homosexuality, or sexual, and whatever it might be, if whatever we did caused them to fall back into that apostasy, then we have sinned. But the American church and culture has kind of created our own definition of stumble. 
And we think it means if anybody is annoyed with you, don't ever do that again. Okay? It's not what the Bible talks about. If anyone is ever shocked by what you do, then abstain forever. It's not what the Bible says. We can use these shocking moments as teachable moments. Jesus was shocking people all the time. That was his business. Jesus' business was shock and awe. Okay? He had a business card and he passed it around and he said, guess what? I'm going in the temple. I'm going to make a whip. I'm going to turn tables over and I'm going to whip people and get them out. I'll tell you what, that was a bit taboo for the day. <gasps> what is he doing? Or, hey guys, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. Oh my gosh, that sounds like cannibalism, you know? I mean, and yet we tend to think if somebody witnesses me going into Blockbuster, they are probably, you know, I'm going to hell for sure. Something, you know, it's like, man, what is stumbling? Stumbling is doing something that causes somebody to fall away from Christ and to fall back into their old sins. It's not stuff that's taboo. It's not stuff that's annoying. And it's not stuff that's shocking. Those most shocking moments can be teachable moments. To stumble somebody is literally tempting them into sin and offending their weak conscience, which we'll get into a little bit later. Now, we've got these universal sins, right? And there's two different camps within concerning sin. There's the liberal Christianity camp that says that nothing is really sin. It's just kind of up to you, okay? Whatever makes you feel right. And if you don't feel right, then it's probably sin to you, whatever, you know? Then there's the other side, the uh, legalistic Christianity that says everything is a sin and we're just going to make rules about everything. Now, concerning wine... Wine is spoken of as both good and bad. Bad when it's associated with drunkenness. In the same chapters of the Bible even, in 1 Samuel chapter 1, you know, Hannah's on her way up to, uh, to see Eli, and Eli thinks that she's drunk, and he says, put your wine away from you. BTW, Hannah wasn't drunk, okay? But it would have been bad if she was. Later on in the chapter, it says, Now when she had weaned Samuel, she took him up with her with the three bulls, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and brought it to the house of the Lord at Shiloh, and the child was young. Okay? 1 Samuel 25. Abigail and Nahor, right? Or Nahor? Nabal, sorry. Um, Nabal gets drunk. Abigail seizes an opportunity uh, to, to leave him. And as she goes... She gives David wine. Okay, so you've got a bad example of alcohol, and that's the abuse of it, Nabal being drunk. And then the good example, just a beverage that she's bringing to David and to his men. So wine is not necessarily good or bad. It depends on who's drinking it, why they're drinking it, and in what circumstances. There's great feasts in the Bible where there's wine, big feasts, people eating, drinking, and celebrating God. Scripture rightly uses wine for communion. Jesus instituted the Last Supper with it. Wine is used for medicinal purposes. For those that are dying in Proverbs 31, for those that are depressed in Proverbs 31, it'll make their heart merry. Paul tells Timothy, the young man, you've got an upset stomach, have a bit of wine to ease the, the pain. It's, it can be a Pepto-Bismol. It was used in the Old Testament as worship. You'd bring your grain offering, meat offering, and ephah of wine. All throughout the book of Exodus and Numbers, you see that. Proverbs 3, verses 9 and 10, you see that wine indicates the presence of God's blessing. Solomon tells us, honor the Lord with all your wealth and the first fruits of your crops, and then your barns will be filled to overflowing, and your vats will brim with new wine. Ecclesiastes 9, 7 says, go and eat your bread with joy. And drink your wine with a merry heart. So often Christians, when they drink wine, they're like, oh, okay. Gotta kind of be, you know. And the scriptures say, if you're doing it, do it to glorify God and be happy about it. You know, don't be a, rav a, rav a rivaler. Sorry, words aren't coming out very well today. You know, unrestrained merriment. That's drunkenness. But be happy about the wine that God has given you and worship him in it. We're commanded to do it. 
Psalm 104, again, verses 14 and 15. God makes the grass grow for the cattle and plants for a man to cultivate, bringing forth fruit from the earth and wine that gladdens the heart of men, oil to make his face shine, and bread that sustains his heart. One verse that's ministered to me is Deuteronomy 14, 26. You shall spend that money, your extra money, for whatever your heart desires, or King James King James, whatever your heart lusteth after, for oxen or for sheep, for wine or similar drink, for whatever your heart desires, you shall eat there before the Lord your God and you shall rejoice, you and your household. The context of Deuteronomy 14 is, man, after you have worked so hard and you've got your money and you give it to the Lord in tithe and in worshiping the Lord and giving back to him what's his, then you offer and you're taking care of the church and people that need and you're just sensitive. Lord, where would you have me give? And you pay your bills and whatever is left over finally, the Lord says, hey, have fun with it. Have fun with it. Buy that ski boat and worship me in it and rejoice with the ski boat. Buy the SUV Buy the rims for your tires if you want. Get the flat screen. Get the Wii. Get the wine. But whatever you do, worship me in it. Don't worship it. Worship me. Be prayerful about what you use God's money for. But he doesn't forbid enjoying life. No more happiness. (laughs) You know? We're going to have a good time. Okay? It's not a sin to just be happy, given life and life abundantly. God's made us free in Christ. It's the message of Galatians. So stand firm and don't give up your freedom in Christ. Even though we're free in Christ, that freedom allows us and gives us the opportunity to give up our freedom at times. That's what's beautiful about grace. Grace says, yes, I can do this, and I can do this, but I don't have to do this. And you know what? Because I love you or you or you who are stumbled by whatever I do, because I love you, I don't have to do that. And I get to abstain in this situation or in this situation because I love you. We always want to ask ourselves, what about Jesus? What about Jesus? Jesus turned water into wine, over 100 gallons of good Wine, the master of the feast said. At the Last Supper, Jesus was with the church leaders. Scripture was in the process of being written. A meal was being shared. And wine was at the table. And yet when we picture it, you know, we picture John leaning against Jesus' chest. Bless this cup, Lord. (laughs) Tiny little sip for you, you know. (laughs) It's, man... Let's be real, you know. They were washing down chunks of bread. They were drinking it. That's what Jesus did. At the Last Supper, Jesus said, you know what, I'm not going to drink it again until I come back in glory. But you know what? Jesus did not abstain completely even when people were calling him a drunkard and a glutton. And you know what? Jesus lived in a day when alcohol was a big deal, when drunkenness was an issue. He's just being an example for us. We have to ask ourselves, are we holier than Jesus? Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians 8 and Romans 14, and we'll close. And let's just, for the sake of time, let's start at verse 7. Of 1 Corinthians 8. And, uh, you know, back in the day, the issues were a little different than they are today. You know, for us, the issues are, you know, are playing video games a sin, or is getting a tattoo a sin, or is getting a piercing on the nose a sin, or is uh, child, um, childbirth protection, birth protection, child protection, whatever, <laughs> birth control. Or child protection. Is that a sin? (laughs) The Lord loves to keep you humble. Dancing. Oh, dancing. Go fish. 
Leads to Las Vegas. Let's all be honest. <laughs> movies. War movies. Rated R. Ah, you know, what? what? The issues, they're so different and yet so similar. Back in Paul's day, it was eating meat offered to idols. But, you know, he says, you know what? In everyone, there's not knowledge in verse 7. You know, it's, man, I know it's okay or I know it's not okay. Not everyone has the total knowledge. For some, with consciousness of the idol, until now they eat it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. But food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. Eat or drink, or don't eat or don't drink. Just love Jesus. Glorify Jesus. But beware, lest this liberty of yours, this freedom, this license, becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who's weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to an idol? And because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. You know, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, you have this verse, you know, that, that helps give the context to it all. You know, it seems within Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8, there's this paradox that's taking place. There's these two equal truths of Christian liberty and license and a weak brother's conscience being stumbled that seem like they could never, ever go hand in hand. And yet in the scriptures, they go hand in hand and they make this incredible paradox. Can I walk in Christian liberties and at the same time not allow my brother or cause my brother to stumble? Does love equal always abstaining forever? Because I just know someone out there, they'd be stumbled if they heard that I'd done this. Or does drink equal always destroying? I can never drink. I'm always destroying somebody. And I don't see in the scripture this being a consistent mentality. What I see in the scripture is if you look at verse 10, if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? It seems to me to be pointing to a location and sensitivity to specific people rather than complete and total abstinence for all time and places. What we see in verse 10 is a blatant lack of concern for a brother's conscience. Picture it. An idol's temple. A big barbecue outside. And there you are knowing that it's totally cool to eat meat. God's totally allowed it in scripture. And there you are. And man, you have got the little cool bib on with the picture of a lobster. And you're just going to town, man. You got barbecue sauce just all over your face. And you know, this person from the local church goes walking by, you know, with, with their spouse and their kids. And they look over and there you are just, oh, I love ribs. I just eat everything off the bone, you know. And that person sees you. And you wave at them and you say, hey, you know, and oh, ribs, you know, and you just... Just no concern or care for the people that are around you. And then that would cause that person to just say, forget it. After looking at that, there's no God. There's no Jesus. There's no redemption. And I'm just going to go do the same thing, right? Eat, drink, be merry. Tomorrow we die. And if you live in such a way that is so insensitive to the people around you, you're sinning against your brother, your weak brother, as the scriptures call and you're sinning against Christ. Romans 14 is another pillar in Christian liberty. But just before it is the chapter of Romans 13, which tells us to obey governing authorities. If you're under 21, you cannot drink, you're in sin. Or if you have a blood alcohol level of over 0.08, you cannot drive. If you do, you're a sin. You're a sin. And we need to obey the governing authorities that God has put over us. Now, in Romans 14, 1 through 13, you see this argument going on as one person on the one end of the spectrum is trying to bind the conscience of the other individual, and yet the other individual is trying to bind the conscience or more destroy the conscience of that individual, and we're told you shouldn't do it. 
There shouldn't be those arguments. Romans 14, 14 through 21 says, you know, that we shouldn't cause a brother to stumble. We shouldn't do it. But verses 22 and 23 say, you know what? It all boils down to an individual's faith. Be sensitive to your brother and sister not to stumble them. And if you eat or if you drink, drink it with faith to God and give thanks and rejoice while you do it. Real quickly, verse 1, receive one who's weak in the faith. You know, the brother that has that struggle, I cannot drink, or it just doesn't seem, that's a, a weak brother, the scriptures say. It's not an insult, and it's not a sin to be weak. It's actually very beautiful to have convictions. I love people with convictions. They're spending time with the Lord, and the Lord's working in their heart, and the Lord's saying, hey, this is not good for you, or this is not good for the people around you. And that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. You're weak in the faith, but it's not bad. And it's, you know, you'll grow over time, but you may still always have that same conviction. One believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. There should be no judgment going on. Who are you to judge another servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he'll be made to stand, for God's able to make him stand. Man, the weak brother seems to think, you know what? That guy, he's using those liberties. There's no way he's going to make it to heaven. He loves Jesus. He's worshiping Jesus. God is able to make him stand. Don't judge one another. As Alistair Begg said, I won't have to answer for the position that my brother held, but I will have to answer for the position I held on my brother's position. Does that make sense or are you all confused? You know? Man, forget, yeah, don't worry about your brother. But worry about yourself and your attitude towards your brother. One person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Man, some people are Seventh-day Adventists. They'd rather worship on that Sabbath day. Hey, let each be fully convinced in his own mind. But don't judge one another and condemn one another. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord. And he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord. If you don't eat, you eat to, don't eat to the Lord. But give God thanks. For none of us lives to himself and no one dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, wherever we live or die, we're the Lord's. Man, you notice Paul goes beyond foods and days to worship on. And he says, man, what about life and death? Talk about this ultimate paradox. How is it possible that God can be glorified in our life that's so full of so many experiences and fragrances and tastes and smells and experiences and actions and, and then death? But we can die to the Lord? And when our time ends on earth, he's just as glorified? It doesn't seem like it could be true. For to this end, Christ died and rose and lived again that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? We shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it's written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me, every tongue will confess to God. So then each of us shall give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this. Don't put a stumbling block or cause to fall in your brother's way. Let's stop this nonsense of judging one another. Be sensitive to one another. I know and I'm convinced by the Lord that there's nothing unclean of itself, but to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it's unclean. Yet if your brothers grieve because of your food, you're not walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. Therefore do not let your good be spoken of. Uh, see, I skipped from verse 15. Oh, yet, oh no, I did. Sorry. Have it typed out here. Verse 16, therefore do not let your good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And we're not about drinking. It's not about social drink. Yeah, it's just all about gathering to drink. No, it's not. It's not all about gathering and not drinking. It's all about gathering and worshiping Jesus. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and things by which one may edify another. Notice there's mutual edification. The weak brother doesn't always get to make the rules. There's mutual edification. There's yielding to one another in love, as Ephesians says. And that's freedom. That is real Christian freedom. I get to yield to you. And you get to yield to me. 
Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are pure, but it's evil for the man who eats with offense. It's good neither to eat meat or drink wine or do anything by which your brothers stumble or is offended or is made weak. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he did not eat from faith. For whatever is not from faith is sin. You guys remember Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17? For I am not ashamed of the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness, the rightness of God is revealed from faith to faith. It's all about faith. Not faith in faith, but faith in what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. So whether you eat and drink, eat and drink with faith. If you abstain, abstain from faith. If you're a vegan, be a vegan in faith. And if you love a barbecue, have a barbecue in faith. But you know what? There's two gospels out there. And one of them is a false gospel. It's a gospel of works. It's a gospel that says, you know what? I know I've sinned. I know I've fallen short of the glory of God. I know I've seen, heard, and tasted and touched things that I shouldn't have done. And so I'm going to make things right. And I'm going to really suffer to please God. That's self-righteousness. And you're going to hell. The gospel of grace is the true, pure gospel. And it says, yes, you've sinned against God. You've fallen short of God's glory but there's good news. The rightness that God demands and requires from you, he actually gives to you and you can be made right through faith, through believing like a little child. It's a gospel of grace. Ken and the worship team, you guys can come on up. You know, God has glorified himself through this whole struggle of research and fasting and praying and late night meetings. And, you know, God has so glorified himself. Because, you know, where the enemy looked like he was going to rob, kill, and destroy, and where gossip, you know, the, a real sin was how it all started, and lies, um, you know what? One of the beautiful things is, is that we have had some incredible fellowship as elders, with the people that brought the concerns to us. And they weren't, they weren't involved in gossip or anything. It was just so neat how we ended up leaving a meeting. Just, yeah, we all agree. This is, this is awesome. And we all look at the, the law of liberty and the law of freedom. And this is beautiful. And we've had incredible fellowship. And God's glorified himself. And you know what? Even talk to, talking to them, just, man, we just, we just want people to be careful. Amen. Be careful. Amen. Be sensitive. But I think that God let all of this come about for a few different reasons. Number one, so we'd have a clear biblical perspective on alcohol. Number two, I really believe that there's some people who, because of rules and regulations that you've just kind of heard, maybe people have put them directly on you, or maybe you've just thought that's just what Christians are. They're just rules and regulations. You've been condemned because you want to have a beer and you've been condemned and feeling guilty and just like you're going to hell for a reason that is unbiblical. Now, if you have an alcoholic past and if that is a sin and the Holy Spirit has you know, you just, the Holy Spirit said, don't go there. Don't go there. Just trust me, don't go there. Amen. You need to obey the Holy Spirit upon your life. But don't let people put mandates upon you that are not biblical. And I think there's people that you just, society has just told you, you're sick and you're wrong. And I think the Bible would say, this is what you've been created to do. Worship God. Don't get caught up in legalistic trips. Walk in grace. Walk in grace. Receive freedom. And then also, this has all opened up the door that Romans gets into in these first three chapters that whether you are a homosexual 
and struggle with those tendencies or are a drunkard or are a, you know, polygamist or whatever, yeah, it's obvious in scripture you're a sin, but for those, you're in sin, but for those that take confidence in their works to get them right before God, man, you're self-righteous and you're just as much of a sinner and we all need the redemption and the atoning blood of Jesus Christ to wash away our sins. So, at Calvary Chapel of Crook County, we ask that everyone act according to their conscience when it comes to alcohol consumption. Because of past sin, some who've had problems with alcohol may need to abstain from fear of stumbling into old sinful habits. For those who enjoy alcohol with biblical moderations, we recommend using discernments when providing hospitality to others who may have had conscience or addiction issues. And best of all, we look forward to the day when our Lord and Savior will appear and prepare for us a redeemed feast with wine. Isaiah 25, 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away every tear from the faces, and the reproach of this people will be taken away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. So we're going to close with one worship song. It was a long study today. I apologize for that. Much to say. A little time to say it. But as we come to the communion table up front, don't worry, it's grape juice. Okay, simmer down. As we come to the communion table, man, let's rejoice in grace. Let's remember the blood of Jesus that was shed for the remission of sins. Let's remember the body that was broken, that your and my bodies don't have to be broken. And let's praise the Lord that neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, nor teetotaling nor social drinking availeth anything but a changed heart and a new creation. And if you're not a new creation today, you can be one right now. By faith, just receiving forgiveness and mercy and laying down all of your pride and self-righteousness. Just lay it down before him and say, Lord, I receive what you've done for me on the cross. I receive forgiveness of sins. Wash them as far as the east from the west. And maybe you're here today and just you've been in bondage. And you can just confess, Lord, I've abused alcohol. It's been a God in my life. Please forgive me. For some today, the Lord would just remove this yoke of a rule that's been on you and give you freedom today. For those today, the Lord would say, hey, not for you, not for you. And for some today, for the first time, you'll be forgiven of your sins, washed by the blood of Jesus. And you can come to the table, grab the cup and the juice and just spend time worshiping Jesus Just one song, we'll just take it quickly today and yet so worshipfully. Go ahead, Ken. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon 97754. Or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.